Father, thank you so much for your tremendous grace and mercy towards us. Thank you for your kindness and love that you have poured out in sending your son Jesus to die for our sins. Thank you so much that you revealed this wonderful truth in your glorious gospel. And Father, I thank you that not only for those of us who are saved were we born again through the living and abiding word, you use your word to grow us in respect to salvation. I pray you prepare our hearts that we would receive your word and allow you by your spirit to do your work in us that we would, by your spirit, be glorifying to you. Thank you. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Now, it's said that there are two realities, uh, death and taxes. Well, there's more realities than that, actually. Uh, for men and some women these days, one reality is the re- is the need to work. Indeed, after the fall, the Lord made it clear to Adam that uh, he would have to work by the sweat of his brow until he went back to the dust. And this is certainly the reality for men. Now, unfortunately, some Christians, this is as far as it goes when it comes to work in the workplace. When something goes wrong, quit and get another job. Boss doesn't treat him well, go to another place. We seem to be very independent when it comes to work. Yet how is a believer to function in the work relationship? What is our behavior to be like? Now as we look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, we're going to see what we should be in the midst of an ungodly world, specifically what workers are to be in Christ. And for those of you who are not working, retired, whatever it might be, it's not a time to tune out and not listen because we're going to see ultimately that the principles in this passage will flow through to what Christ did for us, suffering, and we're going to follow in his footsteps that God might open redemptive opportunities, that we're going to suffer. And now Peter shares with those in this book concerning the work relationship in which they would certainly suffer, but actually at that time, as we'll see, it was the slave-master relationship. If you would turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, we're going to again be looking at what workers are in Christ. And again, I want to encourage you that it is not, the principles here today are not simply for those who will be working. They apply to each and every one of us. Now, we've been in the book of 1 Peter, and we've been seeing that Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor around 64 A.D., It's very close to the time in which they would go through a fiery ordeal as Nero would bring persecution upon them. These are true believers living in the Roman Empire under a wicked emperor named Nero. They are uh, in the midst of persecution and about to receive much more persecution. And Peter has reminded them already that they've been chosen for a great salvation, yet they are temporary residents on this earth. This earth is not our home. We are sojourning on this planet and that each and every one of true believer has been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've been born again in this great salvation unto a tremendous present salvation which has an incredible eternal hope for us. A future inheritance reserved for us in heaven, a salvation that is secured in Christ. And yet Peter reminds us of the temporal realities that we will suffer if, if we have to, if God deems that we should suffer. But God is gracious, using those difficulties to purify us, to, to turn the heat on our lives, to bring the dross to the top, to purify us, that we would reflect his glory. In light of those temporal realities of suffering and, and now our great salvation, we should be rejoicing 
in our salvation, even though these might be distressing, these trials for a, for a time. And then in the rest of chapter 1, we saw as chosen sojourners how we are to live at this point. And Peter gives some commands. We are to fix our hope on the grace to be revealed when Christ comes. We are to be holy because he is holy. We are to live in the context of godly fear because of the price that was paid, the precious blood of Christ. We are to love the body of Christ because we've been born again unto a sincere love of the brethren. And then beginning in chapter 2, we have the command that we should be yearning, setting aside sin and yearning for the pure milk of the word that we might grow in respect to salvation. And then after that point in chapter 2, we have encouragement for those who have truly tasted the kindness of the Lord, for those who have truly been saved. That encouragement to them that God is building up a spiritual house, that we are his temple, we are also the priest offering sacrifices to him. Tremendous reality, he is building us up. This tremendous reality. And then the precious value of Christ, the, the cornerstone is for those who believe. But the same Christ for those who disbelieve will be their stumbling stone unto their eternal damnation. And then lastly, we saw Peter encouraging believers concerning our identity in Christ. We are a distinct kind, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we should proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that all came through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then last week we began, or the week before, began to look at a portion concerning the applications to this great salvation. Do you remember that we saw as aliens and sojourners that we were to stay away or, or abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war with our souls? And within that we saw the first application that we were to keep our behavior excellent among Gentiles. That's non-believers. And as they observe and thus slander us for our good deeds... They might glorify God in the day he visits them, I believe, in the context of salvation. And it is from this Peter moved to talk about submission to governing authorities. And do you remember we saw that we are to submit and obey and honor and pray for them? And it's at this point he moves to the issue of household slaves and masters. And I believe submission was a big issue for these believers here, as it is a big issue for us. We in our flesh do not want to submit. And certainly we don't want to submit to those who are ungodly. So the two areas, I believe, in which this, these people struggled the most, one, with the government over them, Rome, which is a bad, bad deal, and then also the situation of being household servants, most of them, as we'll see today, that these were the areas that God needed to encourage them in, and then also encourage us through that, that as we suffer, God is doing things in Christ which are glorious and eternal. Again, with that, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. And actually, this section goes from verse 12 all the way to 25. We've already looked at uh, 12 through 17. And with that in mind, we're going to look at 18 through 20 today. But it really moves right into the rest of the passage. We're going to have the command, which I'll read in a moment, servants be submissive to your masters. Then we're going to have three fours, three explanations that move all the way to the point where we see that we will follow in the footsteps of Christ concerning suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. 
For this finds favor for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? But but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. That's our passage. But notice what connects to it. And we just don't have enough time to do this today also. But for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled in return, be reviled, be reviling, excuse me, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Today, indeed, we're going to look at verses 18 to 20, which applies directly to the slave-master relationship, which secondarily really mirrors our work relationship in our time. And then the next time we're together, Lord willing, we'll look at how God works through his redemptive purposes in the context of suffering, as he ultimately did with Christ. So then what are workers to be in Christ? And, and ultimately, as we'll see in Colossians, whatever we do, we're to do our work hardly to the Lord. What, in whatever area. So these principles apply, by the way. But specifically, what are workers to be in Christ? What are they to do? As I mentioned, so often Christians will, will understand truth and, and follow the Lord in certain areas, but they'll compartmentalize and go to work, and all of a sudden it's a different situation at work. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. What are they to be in Christ? What are we to be in Christ? How are we to behave? Well, we're going to see that we should respectfully submit to our masters, whether good or bad, even when suffering. And this will be the key to illustrate what Jesus did in his suffering. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, before we get to our passage, there's a few preliminary issues we need to address uh, concerning slavery and work. We need to look at this. and need to share this for the context so that we understand what's going on. Some might ask the question, why commands for slaves and masters? Why would God command slaves? Why wouldn't he just say, slaves, be free? Why wouldn't he tell them to get free? I think one pastor shares this in a way that is uh, I, I agree with. He says, Jesus never condemned or approved slavery directly. The New Testament doesn't condemn or approve of it as an institution. Why? Here is something that the world just doesn't get. Jesus came, and he, he didn't come to directly change human institutions. He never marched against tyranny or campaigned against moral or social ills. He came to solve a far deeper problem than slavery, which is... Our sin. The reality is God is not reforming institutions. He's reforming hearts through salvation. Hearts through salvation. You see, the church is the pillar in support of the truth, not the pillar in support of social justice. God is not into reforming society. He is into redeeming hearts that will have an effect and a light 
to a dark world. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 18 to Pilate? Uh, Pilate answered and said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. The reality is this is not our home. This is not our home. Again, one pastor also writes, The church is not here to reform the world because the world cannot be reformed. The Bible's concern is not to change existing forms of government economic structures, but to show how Christians should react to these things in the context of being a light. Now, by God's grace, according to his providence, we may enjoy blessings he bestows upon nations by having those who are redeemed in office or restrained by those who are redeemed, in a sense. We may have that blessing, and we praise the Lord for that because we want to live a peaceful and quiet life. We pray for that. We pray for the salvation of our leaders. But there are times where God allows oppressive persecution to bring about his redemptive purposes. He does not cause it, and they will be punished for it. But he uses it to bring about his redemptive purposes. Indeed, we'll see that in verses 21 to 25. The ultimate redemption comes through Christ, which was brought through the ultimate evil of man. Now, one last issue to look at concerning slavery and uh, the issue of slavery. Slavery in the first century was not the same as we think. It was an economic reality in the Roman Empire. The whole economy was based on slavery. Now, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, from laborers to doctors. Now, the reasons for being enslaved were such. Acquisition through kidnapping, however, that was on the decrease, or war. Yet, by the first century, most slaves were born into it, And at this time, the rights of slaves were increasing in the Roman Empire. Now, because of God's grace, we do not have slavery anymore in the United States. So with this in mind, how does this passage apply to us? How does this apply to us? Well, what's interesting is we'll see that the slavery of the Roman Empire time is close to but not equal to mirrors some of the realities for Those of us who work, we are enslaved to our masters eight to ten hours a day. And therefore the principles are secondary, but they they come out from this. So again, don't tune out if you're not, uh, if you're retired, whatever it might be. We're going to see the principles are important for each and every one of us. One last issue I want to share now concerning work. Concerning work. What does God say in his word about work? What does he say? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Man has always worked. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were given the responsibility to take care of God's creation. Now, unfortunately, after the fall of man, after Adam rebelled, work became what we know of it today. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. This is the Lord reproving him. Then he said to Adam, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By sweat of your face, the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Folks, God addresses men here. It is men that are to work, as we'll see. And toil until death, we see. But yet, what about women in the workplace? What does Scripture have to say about that? Well, not too much. We'll see a little bit. First of all, we see in Acts chapter 16, 14, that Lydia was described as a seller of purple, and there was no hint of condemnation. Certainly there was no prohibition or anything for single women working. I don't see that in Scripture at all. But what about women with children? Scripture does lay forth a paradigm which must be followed in obedience to the Lord. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women are to likewise be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure. Look at this, workers at home. Kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. And the Apostle Paul addresses those who are divorced in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, not divorced, but widowed in 1 Timothy 5. He says in 1 Timothy 5.14, I'll read this for you. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for approach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Folks, this is very unpopular in our society because people lean on their own understanding. How can my wife do this? She's got to work so that we can provide. Well, wait a second. We never break God's principles to do what God wants us to do. The reality is, for those with kids, they should be at home with their kids raising them. Does that mean they can't have other things on the side? Look at uh, the Proverbs 31 woman. We have the reality of her. Uh, working in a sense as she takes care of her family. So the primary reality is that women are to keep house and raise children, and anything that would thwart this would be against God's word. Now, unfortunately, there are some difficult circumstances and situations that women might get into with children that they might need to work away from their children, say death of a spouse, abandonment, or even the consequences of personal sin, which can be forgiven. In those cases, we need to pray for them, come alongside them, support them, that eventually they would get back to their children. One last thing. Scripture reveals some reasons also why we should work. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In the Thessalonian church, uh, they were so focused on the coming of Jesus Christ that people stopped working. And the Apostle Paul needed to reprove them because they had become a burden on the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul laid forth an example for them, which is an example for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we commend you, brethren, in the name of the Lord, our, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother. That means to turn away from, by the way. Keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. He's going to explain, hey, stay away, but love them, those who are disobedient and not working. 
You know, God uses separation to work on the hearts of those who are disobedient, by the way. He says here, for you yourselves know, verse 7, how you, how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. We are not to be undisciplined. And the context here is work. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working day and night so that we might not be a burden on any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order that to order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord to work in a quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man. Do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Again, that separation that they might have a heart change. Confess and obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. One last passage about work I want to share, and then let's get to our passage specifically. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. In the context of the exhortation not to be the way we used to be, not to think like we used to think, but to have renewed minds, we have these statements then of application. Ephesians 4, 28. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Notice what he says, the reason why here. It's very interesting. In order that he may have something to share with him who, is in, who has need. One element of work is having finances to help those who are in need. That's another reason why. Well, what about retirement? What about retirement? Well, the Bible is actually, besides the priest of the Old Testament, which talks about 50 years old, the Bible is completely silent about that. Completely silent. Obviously, we know as our bodies run down, we can't do the work that we used to do, obviously, in that sense. But if you are retired, if the Lord is the one who took you out of the workforce, not you, if the Lord did, the Lord did, make the most of your time, for the days are evil. Make the most of your time. Do everything heartily unto the Lord. Everything. Everything. Okay, so men are to work, absolutely. And it's not going to be easy. And certainly there will be some women who will work. It applies to some. So how are, how are we workers to be in Christ? Here's the command. Back to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Before we look at this verse in depth, I just want to mention other passages that I'm going to refer to that have to do with work. We're going to see the issue of slaves and masters in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, which was read earlier, verses 5 to 9. And 1 Timothy, verses 
1 to 2. And in each one of those passages, the word that is described of slaves is doulos, a bond slave. But in our passage, there's a different word here. It says servants. It actually speaks of a household slave or a domestic. And I think this was one of the issues that this particular church had. Many of them probably were household slaves. So that time it was very common. It was very common. And again, slavery is not what we think it was. It was like a full-time job at someone's house, but you still were a slave. It's domestic. It's a familiar uh, term. It's only used four other times in Scripture. One very familiar portion that it's used is in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant or no household slave can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold on to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Servants, be submissive to your masters. The household slave was a common position, and probably many, many of those Peter is writing to were household slaves at this time. So with that in mind... As we look at this, certainly he's going to address the issue of slave and master, but again, I think there are applications for us. Notice the command. Servants or household slaves, the domestics, some translations say, be submissive to your masters with all respect. This is that same word that we've seen before. Be submissive or put yourself in subjection. Submit. It comes from the Greek word, hupotasso. It's the same word we saw back in chapter 2, verse 13, in relationship to governments. Hupo means uh, under, and tasso means to order. means to order under. It speaks of lining oneself up under someone. It was used in the military as the sense of someone lining up behind their superior officer and submitting to them. It carries the idea of giving up one's will, lining up under authority. Now, we as Christians don't seem to like authority, do we? Because and then when we don't, that's when we know we're in the flesh, when we're thinking sinfully, right? Because God has instituted authority. He has allowed it. And inherent to the idea of submission is authority. Indeed, biblical submission is ordering under, lining up under someone, ultimately God, who is in the ultimate authority. Biblical submission is always a command from God. And it consists of subjection to the authority that God has allowed in your life, as we will see whether good or bad, whether good or bad. Now, besides the servant-master relationship, which we'll look at today, which mirrors the work relationship, God has ordered other relationships that include submission. We saw in 1 Peter 2, 13, governing authorities, submitting to them. That's also in Romans 13 and Titus 3. Also in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we have wives to be subject to their husbands. We see Ephesians 4, 5 and Colossians 3 also, Titus 2. In 1 Peter 5, 5, young men are to submit to their elders. And in our passage, we see submission between slaves and masters. God has ordained how we function within the church. And in our sinfulness, we are so independent and unwilling to submit rightly to the Lord in the context of the relationships that he has placed in our lives. One passage caught my eye. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Obviously, we have mutual submission in the church, Ephesians 5.22. But turn to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15. This caught my eye. 
as I was looking at this idea of placing oneself under. 1 Corinthians 16, this is Paul and his final greetings as he finishes his letter to the Corinthians here. 1 Corinthians 16, 15. Now I urge you, brethren, and then he's going to give a parenthesis. I like how Paul writes because he's got run-ons all over the place. And I always got in trouble for run-ons, but he's got a run-ons. It's, 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 it's good. It's, it's ordained by the Lord. Now I urge you, brethren, you know that the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. That means they were the first believers there. And that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They are devoted to ministry to the body of Christ. And now look at what he says that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps them in their works and labors. There should be a subjection to those who are ministering for Christ in the, in the idea of helping them in the context of ministry. Very interesting passage. We also see clear teaching in Scripture, Ephesians 5, submission to Christ to the church, or the church to Christ, excuse me, like a, like a, husband, like a wife to a husband. We are all to submit to God, obviously, James 4, 7. But unfortunately, submission has become a dirty word. People don't like it because it is contradiction to our fleshly lusts and desires. And indeed, in any of our lives, when we are not submitting, it reveals pride. It reveals pride. Turn to James chapter 4. James 4. In the context of worldliness, or excuse me, friendship with the world, causing all of our difficulties, our conflicts, what's the source of our conflicts? Those who are willing to submit themselves and humble themselves, this is what God says. James 4, verse, excuse me, 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. God gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. If you are not submitting to the Lord, you're acting in pride. Therefore, humble yourself. Submit to God. We see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. Turn back to the book of 1 Peter and let's go to chapter 5. And then we'll get to our passage. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject. That's the, the word. Be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with what? Humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety or cares upon him, for he cares for you. So then... Back in our passage in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, we have the command, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. The term master, despotes, was where we get our word despot. Someone who is in complete control. Be submissive to your master with all respect. In Titus 2.9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their masters in... Everything. Now, not only are slaves to be submissive, but they are also to obey. 
Nick read this earlier in Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Colossians 3, 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Submit and be obedient. Servants are to, now who are servants to obey? Their own masters. You don't obey and submit to someone else's boss. You submit to your boss, right? 1 Peter 2.18, to your masters. Titus 2.9, to their own masters. Ephesians 5, to those who are their masters according to the flesh. Colossians 3.22, those who are masters, your masters on earth. So therefore, pretty simple command. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And in what sphere is that? In everything, Titus 2.9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Everything. Now, obviously, we'll see that if, God, if, if, if your master in whatever situation, the government or your master is causing you to sin, we do not submit to them, we submit to God. But otherwise, we submit to them in everything and if things aren't good, we try to come to them gracefully and, and respectfully like Daniel did with his superiors in Daniel chapter 1. Now there are many of us here who are temporary servants for those you work. And, and, most, and if you're retired, you were a temporary servant. And uh, there are probably many servants of this day that wouldn't like this command in light of uh, how they're being treated desiring to be freed. But recognize God has sovereignly placed us in those positions. Does it mean we don't pray about the Lord leading us to a different job or whatever that might be? Certainly. But we have a heart, Lord. If you want me here, no matter how bad it is, this is everything in the Christian life. Wherever you want me, Lord God, I'm willing to be here. I'm willing to do it. If you want to lead me somewhere else, I trust you and I'm willing to do that. But while we were in that position, we need to submit. Submit. And notice back in our passage, that we are to do so with all respect. Verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect. The term means all. All means all. And, and the term respect comes from the Greek word phobos. It means to fear. There's a sense of honor and fear and respect of your earthly masters. We need to recognize that God is sovereign and authority over everything and the Lord has placed them in authority over us, and we need to fear them and respect them because that, as we will see, is an evidence of a fear and respect of God. Of God. Let me ask you this. Do you respect those who are in authority over you, whether good or bad? Do you give them all respect? All respect? We see that with the government. We see that with all the submission and, and uh, authority that God has placed. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is what Nick read earlier. I want to share some of the attitudes that we should have. Now, I don't have time to teach on these other passages, teaching in First Peter, but we need to see these passages of the heart attitude which accompanies all respect. You see, it's difficult. You come to work, you've got a boss who's no good, who is uh, maybe berating you. I had a boss for many years when I was a corporate pilot, and he, all he did was berate his employees all the time. 
He would berate me all the time. It was a horrible work situation. And yet the Lord had in my heart that I needed to be there until he moved me and submit to him and obey him, no matter how bad he was, no matter how bad he was. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. You need to recognize if you are in a work relationship, God has placed that person over you. You better recognize that. It is a serious thing. Don't take it flippantly. Don't think you have the choice to treat them any way you want. You do not. Because it represents how you look at God. In sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Fear and trembling as you would to the Lord himself if he was your boss. Not by way of eye service as man pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. It's not some fake thing like Eddie Haskell. Yes, whatever it might be, it's not fake at all. It's from the heart. It's from the heart. It's a heart attitude. It's a heart attitude. Verse 7, with good, with good will render service as to the Lord, not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then turn to Colossians chapter 2, or 3, verses 22. It's a hard attitude. When you see the submit with all fear, it's not an external fakeness around your boss. It is an internal submission to Christ who has placed you in that temporary position as a temporary slave of that master. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Look at it again. Not with external service as those who merely please men. Not a, not a man pleaser who's a liar at heart. Not being a hypocrite. He says here, but with sincerity of heart, notice this, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, now this applies to everybody, whatever you do, retired, whatever it is, whatever, anything it is, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as, to, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Servants, be submissive with all respect. And one last passage. There's a lot about slaves and masters, by the way. One last passage. First Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. This also answers the question, what do I do if my boss is a believer? If he's a believer. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's pretty, pretty heavy. Regard your master as worthy of honor. All honor. And that's good or bad. You know why they're worthy of all honor? Because God has placed them over you. And God is the one ultimately. He says here, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken to you, so that people don't blaspheme the Lord and the truth. How many workplaces do people blaspheme the Lord and the truth of God because Christians are not submitting and fearing and respecting? He says here, and those who have believers as their masters, not to be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, 
but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So then, treat your master as one worthy of all honor, of all fear, of all fear. Let me ask you this. When it comes to the work relationship, do you respect and honor your boss? And if you've been retired, did you respect and honor your boss in the past? If you haven't, you've got some confessing to do. Did you? We all are tempted not to, especially when someone is not godly. God has placed them in temporal authority over you. Respect them, honor them, regardless of how they treat you. Focusing on Christ, who is your ultimate boss, who is our ultimate master. Now you're probably saying, okay, I agree, as long as my boss is a good boss, if he's not, I'll, I'll respect him and honor him, and, 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 or otherwise I'm just going to go find another job. Is that what Scripture teaches? Take a look back in our passage and Take a look back in our passage in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. If you've ever had a bad boss, you're kind of going, hmm, I've experienced that. I've experienced those who are unreasonable, and we'll talk about that in a minute. What's interesting is I think he uses the two extremes concerning the way we are to, to uh, concerning the type of bosses we could have. The first one, good and gentle, describes really what believers should be. Good and gentle, the term seems, means to yield graciously. To yield in reason, reasonable yielding. Hey, that's a good boss, one who is good and, and yields in the context of being reasonable. Wouldn't you like that? That's probably the best boss you can have, right? But then here's the opposite side, the worst boss you can have. He says unreasonable. And now there are all kinds of words translated in different versions here. One says, ESV says unjust. Net Bible says perverse. New King James and NIV says harsh. Well, which one is it? Is it unreasonable, perverse, unjust, harsh? Which one is it? Well, the word translated here is actually comes from the Greek word scolios. We get our word scoliosis for a curvature of the back. It means crooked. It means crooked. It means crooked. And in the context of that, it spoke of someone who was dishonest, unscrupulous in their ways, crooked or perverse. Someone who, by that context, would be harsh or unreasonable. And you can think of any other adjectives that would go with crooked. When you have a crooked boss, a perverse boss, in the way they treat you, that's the worst it could be, right? That's the worst it could be. So you're to submit from the heart, respecting them, no matter how bad they are. Even concerning masters here, it says in verse 20, he uses the term harshly treated. It means to be take a blow with a fist. That's pretty serious. Even if they're bad, submit from the heart, respecting them, because God is sovereign over you in the situation, and he's working redemptive opportunities, and he has favors upon you, as we will see. I'll share this in a minute, but it grieves me so much when I hear people talking about bad work situations, and the solution from their view is to go find another job. That's possibly a solution, but that shouldn't be our first thought. Our first thought should be, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. 
If you want me to be here, I will stay here until you want me to leave. I trust you to guide me. I trust you in that. If you ever find yourself giving yourself excuses, uh, well, I don't need to treat them this way because they act this way. It doesn't go with what we saw in the passage. Now at this point, we're going to see the Lord through Peter move to show us two reasons why we should submit. The first one is a temporal reason, which talks about God's grace towards us when we suffer. The second one is an eternal reason, which we'll look at next time, which shows that God is working his redemptive purposes through our behavior in the midst of those who are not saved, especially in these situations. Look at verse 19. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you, if, if when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This whole portion is about favor with God. When you do what is right, Submitting, obviously, is the context, and you suffer for it. You suffer for it unjustly. This finds favor. You need to realize God's favor is upon you, even though you are suffering, and we'll see that suffering is great. Again, verse 19, 4, an explanation. Verse 24, an explanation. Verse 21, 4, it's all an explanation related to servants being submissive. It's an explanation and an expansion. So then, if you are obeying God's word and you suffer, you need to be encouraged, by the way. In any situation, if you have obeyed the Lord and you are suffering for it, there's going to be grief, as we'll see. There's going to be internal sorrow that you have to bear under. It's difficult. It's difficult. In whatever situation you do, if you're obeying the Lord and you're going to suffer for it, we need to be encouraged. Is there any situation where you have obeyed the Lord and you are suffering the the temporal consequences? We need to be encouraged. And God encourages us in this passage here. He encourages us that his favor is upon us when we do what is right and suffer for it. Servants, be submissive to your own masters, verse 18, with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. That's the full range. For explanation, this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. This principle goes beyond our passage. And it will go much farther beyond as we see the perfect illustration in Jesus Christ who suffered unjustly and died on the cross for us. And God brought redemption through that. He says, for this finds favor, and this signifies an explanation. The term favor here is actually the word most often translated grace, charis. It finds favor with God, but I don't think it means it finds grace with God, as we'll see. It finds God's favor towards us, as we'll see. I think it's a good translation. And the reason I say so is, if you look at the context, look down in verse 20. For what credit is there if you sin? That's a different word. What credit do you get from God, in a sense, if you sin, harshly treated, and you endure it? There's no credit at all. And there's one other passage that helps me, I believe, believe that this passage speaks really of favor or God's pleasure towards you based on the behavior in trusting him. Let me show that. 
Look at uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 31. The Lord Jesus is exposing hypocrisy. And in here we have an illustration of how this word is used, I believe, in the same sense in ours, in a sense. Luke chapter 6, verse 31. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. And if you love those who love you, what grace or credit is that to you? Same word. What favor is that? There's no favor from God if you treat people the same way that, that, that you want them to treat you, those who love you. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit or grace is that? What favor is that? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good to them and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward, this credit, will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Back in our passage. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience towards God. A man bears up under sorrows. God's favor or approval, in a sense, is on you in these circumstances. We need to know that because when, it's, when you suffer, it is very difficult. When you do the right thing and you are suffering, it is difficult. Notice he says, if for the sake of conscience towards God, that's our motive. When I obey my boss, when I obey that, I'm doing that because I'm thinking of the Lord. I'm aware of him. I'm fearing him. My conscience towards him. I'm trusting him. That's the motive. Not because I have to do it. Not because pastor says I got to do that. But because I'm, a, I'm conscience towards God. For the sake of conscience towards God. A fear of God and not man. You see, for the rights, when we do what is right in the context of faith, our conscience is towards God. We see that later on, that Jesus kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Chapter 4 of 1 Peter, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is the key for the sake of conscience towards God. There are some of you here that have never had consciousness towards God in a sense. You don't live your life aware of him and trusting in him and relying on him, doing everything because of him, conscience towards God. You just live your life. You go do your stuff. Believers who are following the Lord are aware of the Lord and our decisions and actions are led by him if for the sake of conscience towards, towards God. For this finds favor, if conscience, sacred conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows while suffering unjustly. Do the right thing, you might suffer unjustly. And you might have to bear up to, to carry those sorrows. The term sorrows here is a very interesting word. It almost never speaks of physical sorrows. It speaks of the emotional and mental grief and turmoil. If you're going through something for, for following Christ, suffering unjustly, there's going to be sorrow. There's going to be sorrow. And when you bear up under it, this finds favor with God. You need to remember that God is on your side. God is on your side. His favor is upon you. You need to know that because maybe no one else's favor is upon you in the situation. You know that God's favor is upon you. 
Obey the Lord. Do what is right for the sake of conscience towards him. Bear under those sorrows. Endure, brother and sister, whatever it is. Do the right thing, whether it's wives and husbands, whatever situation, whether it's in the church, whatever it is, whether it's at work, bear under those things. God's favor is upon you. And notice those words, sorrows is plural, multiple sorrows. And then he goes on to address, well, what credit, verse 20, is there if you sin and are treated harshly and endure with patience? Is there any credit if you sin, say at work, and you endure the consequences with patience? There's no credit at all. God's, God isn't going to put his favor upon you because you didn't. No, you sinned. Yes, we're forgiven, but there's no credit. There's no credit. Later on, Peter will make the same point that none of us should suffer as, a, as an evildoer, but we should entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Notice the end of verse 20. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. When we do the right thing, patiently enduring, this brings his favor upon us. You've got to know that. Here we see the term do what is right again. It's a combination of two Greek words, good and, and do. Do what is right, do what is good. Pretty simple. And by the way, what is doing what is right in this context? Well, in verse 13, it was being subject to every human institution. For such is the will of God by doing good. Verse 15, you might silence the ignorance of foolish men. What is doing right in the context of the marriage relationship for the wife? What is that? Look at chapter 3, um, verse 6. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Again, doing what is right is, is righteous behavior, trusting Christ in the midst of a non-believing world, how we behave, doing what is right, doing what is right. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you sin and you are treated harshly and you endure it with patience? There's no credit. But in contrast, if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Let me ask you this. Have you blown it? Confess your sin. God's gracious. He forgives. Look back. Men, look back. at If you're tired, look back at your work relationship while you're a believer. Did you blow it? Have you blown it in your attitudes? Confess it. Confess it if you're prompted by that. Current work relationships, have you been tempted to have bad attitudes towards your boss, no matter how good or bad? Confess it. Confess it. We're to submit with all fear. We're to give them all honor. Because God is behind that. And as we'll see next time, he is working his redemptive plan through right behavior of his people in the midst of an ungodly world. And guess what? If you suffer, which you will, because we've been called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, if you do what is right, in relationship to any ordered relationship, and if you do what is right, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You're going to be treated unjustly. 
That's part and parcel for believers. Recognize that as you bear up under those sorrows, there are going to be sorrows. There's going to be a lot of tears. As you bear up under those sorrows, God's favor is upon you. His favor is upon you. And he is working redemptive realities behind the scenes because he's saving people. So what are we as workers to do? We're to submit to our bosses in everything. 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 We're to do it respectfully. The world wants you to march against your bosses, treat them badly, whatever it is. Submit. Respectfully. It doesn't mean you agree with them. What they're doing is evil. Wrong. could be very bad. Submit in everything. Be an example. An example of righteousness in their midst. That they might someday be ashamed of the way they slandered you, of the way they treated you, and they might come to Christ. That's more important than having a good work area. Lastly, all this is done in the context of consciousness towards God. How do you live your life? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you conscious of him? Is everything run through a conversation with him? Are you walking with Jesus? Every situation? Otherwise, if you don't, it's just external. It's not true. It's fake. Some of you don't have any awareness in a sense of submitting, trusting him because you don't know him. Today's the day of salvation. Turn to him. And then for those of us who do, may we do our work heartily unto him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's very direct here, but the principles go way beyond. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us who are working and responsible, that we as believers would be examples of Christ-like responses, that we would submit to our earthly masters with all respect, that we would not do so externally but from the heart knowing that we are serving our master in heaven, that we're serving you. I pray if anyone's failed, Lord God, because we do fail, that we would just confess and be forgiven and we would step forward and righteously do what is right. And Father, for any of us, for those of us who are suffering for doing what is right, Lord, your word reveals it is there are sorrows. May we recognize that your favor is upon us, that your grace is sufficient. Lord God, and may we trust you. Keep entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.